Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Got a layer of fresh snow and bright sunshine. It is a bright, sunshiny day. I don't know if it's symbolic about what's happening today in Washington, D.C. or not, but I'm taking it that way. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jen Cahoon, and Chris Murnowski. Happy Inauguration Day. Happy Inauguration Day. And to you as well. These are always interesting days. It's, it's the day where you have hope before all that comes crashing down and the bitter fighting begins. It's a day where we kind of look at our country, we look forward, and we have hope that we'll start to get things right. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then we'll see what happens. Let's begin our discussion. Did several of the people arrested in the Washington, D.C. insurrection have designs on doing something similar in the Columbus State House? Jane Cahoon, Andrew Tobias published this story yesterday and my jaw dropped. We could have very easily had some real violence in Ohio following what happened in Washington, D.C. What are the details? Yeah, there were some really chilling revelations in these charging documents There were a couple of people from Ohio who belonged to a militia who were arrested uh, for breaching the U.S. Capitol. And one of their leaders, a guy named Thomas Caldwell of Virginia, had sent these Facebook messages out, apparently documenting his part in the riot. And one of them read, we need to do this at the local level. Let's storm the Capitol in Ohio. Tell me when. Yeah, apparently that's uh, that's what their their plans were. He the the two people from Ohio are from uh, Champaign County, Donovan Crowell and Jessica Watkins. They the the three of them were all charged together with conspiracy and and, and other uh, charges. So and we talked you know, last week about how this was getting more sinister with every day, and the stories that came out yesterday showed just how sinister there was. I mean, this was 30 to 40 people all moving in organized fashion through the Capitol, seeking to make citizens arrests of Congress members. And then when they found out they were in a in a tunnel three stories down, talked of trapping them and gassing them. That goes way beyond hooliganism by by wackos running around the Capitol. And and that Ohio militias had a yeah. role in that is frightening. Remember, Ohio played a key role in that conspiracy to kidnap the Michigan governor. It's right. really scary right. stuff here. This group is called the Ohio State Regular Militia, and they're affiliated with the Oath Keepers, that loosely organized right-wing group that believes the government is is stripping away their their rights, and they, they recruit a lot of former military members. But one other interesting tidbit that came out here is when they searched this leader's home on, on Sunday, they found directions for making explosives and uh, they found guns, a respirator, a paintball gun with rubber steel balls and uh, pool cues cut down to baton size and a bunch of zip cable ties. So these guys were, they were serious. No good. <laughs> you know, Brian Albrecht, the plain dealer reporter did a, a series on militias in 
kind of central Ohio area, not this one, about less than a year and a half ago that that looked at their activity um, pretty present because that this is scary stuff. I wonder, you know, Mike DeWine was asked yesterday, how long are you going to keep the security up around the state house? They really brought in a ton of military presence, National Guard. And he said, you know, this is hard. I, 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 it, it's hard to figure out, but th- these threats are out there. Well, he certainly has evidence of a threat now. They were talking specifically about storming the state house. I imagine yeah, that someone asked him if he over, he thought he overreacted. And I think he's pretty much vindicated that he didn't overreact, even though the Sunday protests turned out to be kind of a nothing burger. You know, I don't think anybody can really accuse him of overreacting to these threats. Well, and it was probably a nothing burger because of the show of force that these yeah. these wannabe government overthrowers are pretty much cowardly in the end. And when they saw there was going to be a big force, they stayed home. Chris Ranowski. One, one thing that, that I, I think is is keeping the concern level a little high is the fact that today is supposed to be the quote unquote great awakening for the QAnon conspiracy theory. And you know, there's supposed to be arrests of mass arrests of Democrats and public executions and and, and all of this that's, stuff. That's, that's today. That's supposed that's to happen today. today. You know, that's the, if they keep moving the goalposts, it's like every doomsday cult you've ever seen. It's like, well, the world didn't end. I we misread the the, the <laughs> leaves, and and so the line moves. And 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 I tell you, it, it's it's easy to sort of clown on this, but you know you have to wonder where that energy is going to go when none of this happens and, and they're disappointed. I mean, usually what happens in cults is, is they double down on it. You know, it's, there's never a, for a lot of people, there is never that moment of clarity. And so, you know, the speculation is that, that groups like these militias that were actually doing the, the heavy lifting and the planning of the insurrection are going to turn to these disaffected Q people and use this as a way to recruit them into their anti-government ways. Well, it, I, it explains why they're keeping the security around. We'll have to see how today goes. I hope it's a peaceful day. You're listening to This Week in this CLE. How did Cleveland State University bend the rules? Well, let's be honest and say break the rules to hire a disgraced former Cuyahoga County official into a $140,000 a year job. Chris Ranowski, the story of Douglas Dykes gets weirder with every passing month. It's been weird since he first came to the fore as a a target of a criminal investigation, and it it just stays weird. I, I don't understand what CSU was thinking. What's the latest? Right. So uh, Courtney Astolfi learned that uh, Cleveland State University allowed Doug Dykes, who used to work in the Human Resources Department of Cuyahoga County, to apply for a newly created human resources position 10 months after the deadline for applications had closed. Then they hired him while he was on probation for corruption charges that were related to his job as a human resources worker with Cuyahoga County, passing over 37 other applicants. The records that we got show that CSU's year-long request for applications for the $140,000 a year job expired February 2020, and that Dykes uh, applied on December 7th, uh, 2020. And, and, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the, the, the long and short of it. The, the, the amazing thing to me, there were, I think it were 30 something people applied, right? So, mm-hmm. so a whole bunch of people, three, three dozen people meet the deadline. 
and and do what's right and don't have criminal background, have not used deception that results in obstruction of justice uh, conviction on their record while working for the public, they all get passed. So this guy who applies 10 months late can get the job. I, it doesn't make sense to me. We got 1.3 million people around here all of whom probably are more qualified to have this job than Doug Dykes because he's proven he's not trustworthy. You know, when an HR official deals with seriously confidential information, do you really want somebody who you can't trust in that role? And and CSU trots out, well, we believe in second chances. There's a whole difference between second chances and giving somebody a $140,000 a year job. Uh, and it's mind boggling. And CSU kind of babbles when you ask about this. They don't really have a good explanation. They also kept these records from us for a while. They were trying to delay or duck this story, but Courtney Astafi wouldn't let it go. I mean, I believe in second chances too. I think that's one of the great things about our criminal justice system. The problem is he was still on probation. And, and, and so I, you know, great. Like this, but this is a $140,000 a year job. And it looks really suspicious that 37 people applied for it. And 10 months after the, the deadline to apply, this guy applies and gets it. You know, there's, you know, we maybe we haven't seen the fire, but this is definitely smoke. And, yeah, and, and and this is a, you know, what he was accused of doing was a crime related to his job as a human resources worker. So, you know, to me, it, it is a, it is a crime of corruption and dishonesty as a steward of the government, which, which well, to me is, but- is, is a dishonesty that, you know, that you wouldn't maybe want to bring into the same kind of position. But let's be specific, right? So, and we've criticized the criminal investigation of him. He gave a guy a bonus that the charter did not allow. He did it with permission from his boss, the county executive, but it was a $10,000 bonus that he wasn't supposed to give him, uh, even though they had advice from their law director that they they could it, we we called it at the time you shouldn't be doing this but but they kept saying we have legal authority they they were they originally indicted him with theft now he didn't get anything he didn't steal anything he gave a guy a bonus he didn't have coming you could say maybe malfeasance but it was never theft so those charges were never going to stick but this guy because he's so lacking in character wilted under the pressure of that investigation and wrote a check to repay the $10,000 and here's the rub he made it appear somebody else did it that's right. the deception that's the part where his character is seriously in question and that's why he had to plead to obstruction of justice now he's got another seriously high ranking job in another government institution that's the problem yeah i mean most most people who commit crimes don't go from don't hop from one six-figure job to the other. I mean, maybe some of the people that are leaving the president's administration. But, you know, I mean, this is, this is not regular. You know, if, if, if an average citizen committed a crime, getting a six-figure job would be difficult. You know, whether you believe that's tr- good or not is, is another argument. But in this situation, I just, I, I feel like the, the, the issue that he was accused of is so, you know, he's going to be in that position, you know, kind of that position again. And so it's just, I don't know how you trust somebody in that, in that position. 
it it after, like after this kind of conviction. It seems like it's a different day at Cleveland State with Harlan Sands there. I just can't imagine Ron Berkman or his predecessors would have done it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What percentage of Ohio school districts are promising to be back in the classrooms by March 1st? Laura Johnston, this has to be your question. You're the one that has struggled the most on this podcast with the at-home stuff. Your kids are still in a hybrid, but it looks like we're going to have a lot more kids in the classroom starting in a couple of months. Yeah, 96% of Ohio schools say they will be back in the classroom. That's a combination of full-time in-person school and hybrid. So hybrid could be a whole lot of different things. Kids might go every other week, uh, several days a week, or half days. But the, the main idea is that only half the students are in the building at a time so they can spread out more. But this is all dependent on the vaccine that Mike, uh, Governor Mike DeWine had said, I will begin, you know, I will give the vaccine to teachers if their school districts agree to open. And so that could start uh, next month and an expected return to the building date of March 1st. So whether those teachers are going to have double doses of the vaccine by then, that is still a question. But the staff will not be competing for space with the public at uh, hospitals or retail providers for the vaccine. They will be working through their districts and the local health boards to get the shots. I do get the impression the March 1st date is a little bit wiggly, that that instead of it being the hard and fast, they must be in, it's more they've got to aim for it. And so in good faith, they're saying, yes, we will aim to be back in the classroom by March 1st. They get all their teachers vaccinated. And then sometime in the ensuing month or two, they start to come back to school. But but DeWine's goal is met. He wants kids in the classroom because they're suffering when they're not there. The hardest thing is going to be for Cleveland because they haven't been in school since last March. Right. And getting them to come back and absenteeism is a big problem in the Cleveland schools and getting them to come back will be a challenge. We haven't heard Eric Gordon say definitively that he's aiming for that March 1st date. I don't believe it'll be interesting to see where they come down. But think about that. I mean, March 13th, I think was the last day of school last year. So that, and and March 1st. So we're talking two weeks shy of a full year of kids not being in the classroom. I mean, that is mind boggling. I know we've talked about it before on this podcast and we'll talk about it again, but what happens with these kids and how their education has changed is something that we we still haven't begun to fathom yet. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to see how that turns out. We'll be watching the absenteeism. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How many people have been targets of unemployment fraud in Ohio by people filing claims under their names? Jane Cahoon, this is Chris Quinn's life becomes a new story. I was <laughs> I got notices in the mail of a pin and all sorts of things and realized somebody had applied under my name and actually had my social security number. As we started checking around, we found out this is a pretty big deal. And I'm in some interesting company with the governor and the lieutenant governor. What's going on here? gave it away. I was going to say you are not even close to being the most prominent person. (laughs) Not even close. Not even close. (laughs) So we got Governor Mike DeWine, First Lady Fran DeWine, and Lieutenant Governor John Houston all scammed by this. or all the, the, you know, somebody made the attempt anyway. But uh, so we asked about this at the briefing on, on Tuesday and said, you know, how widespread is this? And Houston said they're still trying to track down exactly how many fraudulent jobless claims have been filed. But but he said there's so many of them 
that state officials are now checking on every claim to make sure it's genuine. And that's, um, not surprisingly, slowing things down and leads to the legitimate claims being delayed. Like we really need that already in this messed up system. (laughs) But um, my confusion on this is how this even could work. So, so somebody files in my name and my employer gets a notice of it and they're, they know that I'm not unemployed, that I'm working and they reject it. All of the passwords and pin stuff comes to my address because the state has my address. So the people filing this don't get it. It seems like it's more of a harassment thing. Nextdoor.com is filled with people talking about this. This is way more widespread than, than we had thought. And, but I'm not, I just don't understand what, where you make the money. Yeah, we, we do know about, you know, some deceased people who uh, apparently people try to file under their names and then they, you know, the intent might be to like steal it from the debit card from their mailbox or something. But I don't understand all the ins and outs of, of how this works, but it's happening. There are attempts at this, you know, people stealing people's identities. And a lot of Ohioans don't even realize that they, that they're victims until they get this 1099 tax form from the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services uh, for, for benefits that they, that were dishonestly, you know, filed for in their, in their names. Although that doesn't make sense, Jane, because when somebody files, they send you two mailings. One is your PIN and the other is your password in the in the U.S. mail. I mean, that's how I found out. It was like, why do I have a PIN? And when I did some checking, it turned out that, yes, that had happened two days before somebody had, had filed for it. You know, we get a lot of uh, people that that go to churches and 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 make requests in our name for prayers because we get the bounce back email saying your prayer request is met. We get a lot of notes back from Sherrod Brown and the White House and other government officials who people send notes to and use our email address as their return address. So we I, I, we must have gotten 300 emails from Sherrod Brown last year saying thank you for reaching out. In the White House, we get them by the by the dozens. The prayer ones are, are hilarious. When people get mad at us, they must think we need we need help from God. So I wonder if this is in that vein, that it's just somebody messing with us. They don't like what we're doing and they just decide to do some harassment by putting things in under our names. Because well, you got to believe that happened with the governor and the first lady. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's just it's just a form of harassment because they can do it. You're right, though. The the ramification is this is slowing down the unemployment. It was interesting that before we asked this question yesterday, that that John Houston had gone out of his way, kind of awkwardly changing the subject to talk for a minute about cybersecurity threats. Mm-hmm. And he talked about what a danger it is and people should be protecting themselves. So when Laura Hancock asked the unemployment question, he rose to it. He, one, he said, yeah, it happened to me. And two, <laughs> this is exactly what I was talking about. You've got to be careful about your information. So uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see what happens happens next, if they can figure out where this is coming from. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did handling mail addressed to a state prison make two Cuyahoga County court workers so sick they had to go to the hospital. Chris Ranowski, this was a little bit scary, but it, it, and it sounds like it's part of the drug trade in the end. 
Right. So there were some letters that were supposed to, they were headed to a prison in Lucasville that were accidentally diverted to the Cuyahoga County Clerk of Courts office. And two employees um, actually became sick after touching them, according to a report that the Sheriff's Department released, along with some some body camera video. Um there, there, there haven't been any arrests made in this just yet, but, but what, what investigators suspect is that the large envelope that contained seven different letters to inmates at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility, um, had something on them, something laced on them. And they haven't come out right and said it was drugs, but this is, is, is kind of commonplace in, in, in some respects that, that sometimes they'll either soak pages in it, or I've actually seen cases where they seal things like heroin in the, like carefully in within the adhesive of the, of the envelope. And, you know, there's, there's different ways of of smuggling stuff in. I, I, you know, there's a lot of industrious ways that, that drugs get into jails. And this, this might be one of them. And it, and it actually made people sick. The employees opened the letters and, and said within about 40 seconds, their hands were tingling and they shook and their hearts raced. And it's a scary thing. So if I soak paper in drugs and send it to an inmate, how do they get the drugs out of it? Do they eat the paper? Do they roll up the paper and smoke it? What? I, mean, obviously I think they smoke it. I think they smoke, they smoke it. it. Yeah. So this is this is wow, fascinating. And the the story, Adam's story said that that's become a widespread way of getting drugs into prisons is with drug soaked pages. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a new one. I had missed that. I mean, trend. I mean, look, it, it's we had an instance over at the Euclid Jail where somebody used a drone to try to drop drugs in the jail. I've seen uh, somebody threw a tennis ball over the wall of a jail that I had a, in a community that I used to cover and it had heroin stuffed in it. You know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, people who need drugs in jail, they, they find a way. And, you know, it, it's not always just guards who have been corrupted to, to, to bring stuff in, uh, you know, from, from the street into the jail. It, it you know, there, there are industrious ways that this happens. And so this, do, do, do prisons now have to use drug sniffing dogs or drug tests on every piece of correspondence that comes through their hands? I don't, I don't know about that. There, there are some limitations on what they can stop as far as letters. You know, there, there's a lot of litigation around uh, whether they're allowed to open letters, whether they're, you know, and it varies from state to state. And, and, and so it's, it's, you know, there, there are some limitations on their ability to, to look at, at correspondence because it might be stuff from attorneys. It might be, you know, so, so this, this is a loophole in some respects. Very interesting story. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How can the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority have an impact on reducing infant mortality in black families in parts of Greater Cleveland? Lord Johnson, you don't traditionally think of a transit agency as a potential answer for infant mortality. And we know that infant mortality in Cuyahoga County is terrible and it's like a 61, six to one ratio black to white, that a, a black baby has a six times greater chance of dying than a white baby and when, when you take all things into consideration. So it's interesting that the RTA has come up with a possible solution. 
Yeah, this is really interesting. This baby on board program, um, the RTA is going to use up to $100,000 in grant monies from the Ohio Department of Transportation. And mothers will get, and expectant mothers and new mothers will get free monthly transit passes uh, if they live in three different zip codes um, in Cleveland's east side, East Cleveland, and Cleveland Heights. And these three zip codes have very high rates of infant mortality. And women often cite transportation issues as the primary reason for missing medical appointments. So they're going to upgrade the bus stops in those areas and let the moms ride for free. And you have to think that these free passes, not only is it going to let them get to their doctor's appointment, both prenatal and postnatal appointments, um, easier, but it's going to relieve some stress for them. And and we've talked a lot about um, systemic racism and, and the internal stresses that, um, that Black people everywhere feel. Um, and it it's, it comes down to health. And I think this is a really inventive, creative program that I hope makes a difference. Yeah, I, it was one that, that just kind of took me aback. And it's $100,000 that they'll spend on it from the uh, state transportation department. And they worked with the health department to identify three zip codes where the problems are worst. It's part of Cleveland, part of East Cleveland, part of Cleveland Heights. So we'll have to see how that goes. But uh, credit to the RTA for being inventive. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Voters ejected Judith French from the Ohio Supreme Court in November. So why is Governor Mike DeWine so fervid in finding a new job for her? She was up for one, and now she has another. Jane Cahoon, it seems like that people, It's we, we talked previously about a county official who got a job at CSU after leaving in disgrace. Seems like these people just kind of bounce around and always land on their feet, even if voters say, we don't want you. That's true. I mean, she did not leave in disgrace, but she she was rejected by the voters. And on Tuesday, Governor Mike DeWine named her as director of the Ohio Department of Insurance, one of his cabinet members. The uh, The job was open. The, the previous director had left last summer. So, you know, French, of course, has been a loyal statewide Republican. And after she lost to Democrat uh, Jennifer Bruner, they, they seem to be looking for a spot for her to land. She she was one of four finalists for the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio to replace Sam Randazzo, the, the chairman who stepped down after the FBI searched his home and after it was revealed that First Energy made a $4 million payment to an entity associated with somebody fitting his description before DeWine named him as the state's top utility regulator. But anyway, she was one of the four finalists uh, for that job. And there was some criticism about that because she had received campaign contributions from the utility industry. And some advocates um, had said, you know, don't do it. So, but anyway, she ended up in the Department of Insurance instead. And DeWine called her a solid, good, smart, dedicated public servant. He's known her for a long time. And, uh, you know, he told her he wants her to focus on things like equity and mental health insurance coverage uh, and, and for people with drug problems. So that's her, her, her new mission. couple of things, though. I mean, she she didn't just lose. She was a Republican incumbent in a state that voted in huge numbers for Donald Trump and has voted largely Republican in almost every statewide race. So for her to lose, it's a pretty big statement by the voters. It is, but the party affiliation is not listed on the judicial 
uh, races. So but the people Republicans might not have known she was a Republican. The Republicans went into did a lot of work to make sure people knew she oh, was certainly, a Republican. Certainly. And, and the other Republican in the race did win. So, so I, you know, I would argue that's a pretty strong statement from the voters. And then the second thing is, really, what are her qualifications for insurance? Yeah, I think he, uh, Dewine said she she's got some background in insurance, but I know you know <laughs> she she's buy, been a judge she for a while. For her car, <laughs> yeah, well, and she she worked for the Ohio EPA, so you know she's got a legal background. Um, but I'm not uh, totally certain but what the insurance background is. But there are people who have spent their entire lives in the insurance industry who have spent hours and hours with actuarial tables who understand insurance like like it's second nature. They're not the ones that got the job. She's got the job. It just it seems odd to me that you couldn't find somebody with more insurance experience to run the insurance department. And and again, this is somebody that the voters bounced out. Chris Marnowski, you were going to say something? Oh, I was just going to point out, I wonder if she's ever had to rule in any significant cases related to the insurance industry. I, I wonder where her 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 you know voting as a member of the Supreme Court falls when it comes to dealing with that industry specifically. Or did she get any campaign donations from it? Do we know that, Jane? That's the question you can't answer today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to put you on the you're, spot you're there. Correct. <laughs> All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Well, that'll do it. I imagine that uh, you're all going to try and have the inauguration on in the background to witness history. Yeah. In the background, it's I'm going to be just sitting in front of the TV. I'm not doing any work today. <laughs> yeah. Did nobody tell you I'm off? No. I, <laughs> I told my kids we will um we'll DVR it, but they had the hardest time saying the word inauguration. They were like, "Wait, what is it called again?" So like, I've seen some memes where they're calling it the inauguration because of Champ and Major, the the Biden dogs that will be in the, the rescue house. dogs. Yay. Yeah. Well, it's going to be the strangest inauguration of our lifetime with COVID and the security. I hope so. <laughs> it's uh, it's just going to be a very different spectacle. And it'll it'll be interesting to see what kind of uh, remarks Biden makes. It sounds like he's going in to sign a whole bunch of executive orders to over, throw out many of the executive orders that Trump wrote. If you'll recall, Trump came in and did the same thing. So 515, Chris, 515 p.m. <laughs> And, and that's when you pop open your drink and you take a long drink and relax. <laughs> so okay. We just got to get to there. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow. 